Okay, the Doomsday Sanction. So the first thing I want to note is that the uh, the reporter on the TV that Waller's going to be listening to here as she starts her morning routine is uh, played by Armin Shimmerman, who also voices uh, Dr. Milo in this episode. Armin Shimmerman is uh, yet another Whedonverse uh, alumnus being cast in, uh, in Justice League Unlimited. As a matter of fact, he's one of several in this particular episode. Armin Shimmerman, of course, played uh, Principal Snyder, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer also played uh, Quark in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I'll mention uh, the other instance when we get there. It's interesting that they chose such a an offhand way of uh, introducing Lex's presidency. It took me a couple of views before I realized what was happening there with the, the screens uh, futzing out, that it was actually Batman working his way into Waller's, past Waller's defenses and deactivating each of them in turn as he did. That's another very Whedon-esque uh, teaser break there as well, ending on a an unexpected note. So this is the episode that really brought a lot of the uh, the Cadmus subplots to the fore and really set the stage for uh, the rest of the season. Sort of drew the uh, drew the line in the sand, so to speak, between uh, where the Justice League stood and where Cadmus stood, and, and really where we learned about Cadmus. And, and how it operated and who worked for it. And um, Bruce Tim mentions in the special features that it was important at this point for the audience to really understand why Cadmus was doing what it was doing, what Waller stands for, and uh, and what they were hoping to accomplish. So they didn't just seem like the stereotypical shadowy government conspiracy that they'd done several times before in the other series. So here we really get a sense that they're, from their perspective, uh, serving the greater good. Here Batman reels off Waller's resume, mentioning several things that I mentioned back in the Ultimatum commentary. And here again we're reminded that Waller theoretically knows Batman's secret identity. He doesn't seem too disturbed by this. Here Waller makes a little mistake uh, when she mentions that in another dimension seven of them overthrew the government and assassinated the president. Uh, She's of course referring to the Justice Lords except for the fact that only six of them overthrew the government because Flash, as we learn later on this season, was killed by Luther before the Justice Lords seized control. So only six of them actually took control of the government in the Justice Lords dimension. And Waller makes obviously some some good points here as well. I mean, shouldn't the government, shouldn't shouldn't the ordinary people, have some line of defense against the Justice League? It's the same reason that, uh, and and they they uh, they mention this specifically uh, at the end of the episode. It's the same reason that Batman carries kryptonite around. I mean, Superman knows that even if he doesn't consciously step over a line. There could come a day when he's mind-controlled again or whatever, and it might not be a conscious choice. It might just be, you know, some alien 
taken control of all the metahumans or something, and ordinary people will need a way to defend themselves. So the fact that they're making valid points helps us to uh, helps us to see where they're coming from, and and uh, doesn't make this episode as one-sided as it otherwise could have been. Here, of course, uh, they use the motif of the meeting tables spinning around uh, to draw parallels between the Justice League and the Cadmus High Command here, again to reinforce that uh, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Here, there, we see briefly Dr. Hugo Strange from uh, one of the early episodes of Batman the Animated Series. Hugo Strange was originally going to play a larger part in this season, uh, presumably was going to play the uh, the part that uh, Dr. Moon ended up playing in Question Authority, uh, the, the uh, scientist who was torturing the question, presumably was going to play that role except in an expanded capacity, except they realized late in the game that they didn't have the rights to Hugo Strange, that those rights had gone to the the Batman cartoon, and so they couldn't use him. We also just heard in that little roundtable sequence uh, Juliet Landau's first lines as Tala. Juliet Landau, of course, is another uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer alumnus, played uh, Drusilla there and in the spin-off series Angel. Here does sort of a one of those vaguely Eastern European accents that a lot of uh, a lot of people have in these cartoons when they the the creators want them to sound vaguely foreign and exotic. Milo here is obviously somewhat disheveled. Armin Shimmerman did not play Milo back in Batman the Animated Series. That was Treat Williams, if I recall correctly. But uh, Armin Shimmerman delivers a very good performance here. He's quite good at playing weaselly people who kind of get in over their head. I love that little fantasy sequence they give Milo here where he pretends, where he imagines shooting them all and then uh, just cuts out of it. It's quite unlike anything they've uh, they've done before. And it's so unlike anything they normally do that it kind of takes you a second longer than it otherwise would to uh, to realize exactly what you're seeing. And this, of course, also serves to tie in a lot of uh, continuity going all the way back to the very first episode of Batman the Animated Series when Milo says Professor Langstrom's research was quite helpful. Of course, he's referring to Kirk Langstrom, the man-bat. So we're getting everything from earlier episodes of this series with uh, the revelation that General Eiling is part of this uh, council here. Going back to Superman with references to General Hardcastle's work and Luther's associations with him and uh, then all the way back to Batman the Animated Series with uh, Professor Milo and references to Kirk Langstrom. Here, of course, we're uh, reunited with Doomsday, last seen being lobotomized by the Justice Lords Superman. Here they uh, they futz with Michael Jai White's voice a little bit. It's still the same actor who played Doomsday back in A Better World, but garbled under a lot of uh, some Kirby-esque design elements. They're garbled un- under a lot of... Um, reverb and uh, and distortion. If you want to come up with a reason why he didn't sound that way before, just say that when Superman lobotomized him, he nicked his speech center or something. 
Doomsday's origin, of course, is um, only bears the most su- superficial similarities to his comics origin. Thematically similar, but uh, the details are different. Uh, here, this is, I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. Here, the, the rocket that Doomsday bursts his way out of uh, as it falls back to Earth, uh, it's supposed to start looking like the what we thought in a better world was a meteor crashing to Earth, but the fact that a rocket that looks like that could end up looking like that, I think, is a bit of a stretch. Uh, there's some other discontinuities with a better world that I'll reference in a minute. Um, but yeah, Doomsday. I mean, in uh, in a better world, he said that he was here to fight the best our world had to offer. Now, of course, as we learn here, he's from Earth. He's a clone of Superman. He's presumably not aware of these things until Milo reveals them to him. So I guess the idea is that the, the all the stuff he was spouting back in A Better World was sort of his cover story, which he had been implanted with and believed at the time to be true. But uh, Doomsday's origin in the comics, he's actually from Krypton, so that little bit of a connection to Superman is, is actually uh, accurate. In the comics, uh, he has no name other than Doomsday, except to say that his creator referred to, uh, referred to him as the Ultimate. The idea was that in ancient Krypton, there was this uh, rather... Uh, cold-hearted scientist, as many Kryptonian scientists seem to be, who decided to create the ultimate in uh, genetically engineered life forms. And so he took a a regular Kryptonian baby uh, and set it out into the wild to be torn to shreds by rabid Kryptonian animals. Uh, The scientist would then harvest a little bit of genetic material from the remains of the child, would make some genetic alterations to prevent it from being uh, killed in the same way, and would then grow a new uh, life form from those samples and send it out into the wild again, where it would again be torn apart by presumably a different animal, and then the scientists would retrieve some remains, alter the genetics to make it immune to that form of attack, and then send it out again, and etc., etc. And over many years, the resulting life form became so mutated that it resembles what we know today to be Doomsday, and it became invulnerable to just about every form of physical and and uh, mental attack. It was uh, rocketed away from Krypton, where it got into all sorts of trouble on other planets, including Apocalypse, and uh, eventually made its way to Earth, where it broke free and, of course, killed Superman and died itself in return, although it's since come back. So the idea here... Uh, the fact that it was genetically engineered and, and uh, has a connection to Superman and, and therefore to Krypton and was sort of put through a torturous existence to become the ultimate killing machine is thematically you know, accurate, but a lot of the details are different from its comic uh, counterpart. This fight, I felt, could really have benefited with some... Uh, Dong Wu or uh, DR movie animation. As far as uh, JLU fights go, this is nowhere in the league of stuff we've just seen recently, like uh, the Once and Future Thing Part 2 or the Cat and the Canary, and is nowhere near as exciting as, uh, say, Clash or Divided We Fall. It even pales, uh, although the, the setting is somewhat more dramatic. The fight choreography even pales in comparison to A Better World, I feel, which was animated by Dong Wu. Everything just seems sort of flat and perfunctory, as opposed to the uh, the fluid 
ever ratcheting tension of uh, of the a better world fight scene. Doomsday has some good lines in here too. I also like the uh, the idea that, and this is nothing new as far as you know. Uh, corrupt government organizations run amok in uh, in superhero fiction is concerned, but I also like the idea of the, Ju- the Justice League. I mean, some of the things the Justice League does, as Waller points out, and as Lois Lane points out in uh, at the beginning of Question Authority, some of the things the Justice League has done are somewhat uh, questionable, such as firing the, the the space gun in the desert and, and destroying Lexor City in the fight with Captain Marvel and so on. Uh, and, all, of course, all the stuff the Justice Lords did, but what the Justice League is doing in this episode is the, you know, pure, pure hardest, is that an adjective? Just the purest of uh, intent, most noble thing they could be doing, which is getting defenseless people off an island that's about to explode or, or be, you know, buried under molten rock or whatever. Absolutely no way that could be misconstrued as any sort of hostile or uh, power-hungry move. And yet... Uh, Cat through Cadmus's own internal uh, dysfunction, many many lives are nearly lost. When the, all the Justice League is trying to do is this very noble, selfless thing. So it, uh, despite the fact that we learn a lot about Cadmus in this episode and start to feel some uh, some understanding of their point of view, this episode is structured such that we still see the Justice League as undoubtedly the good guys because they're trying to do this uh, really heroic thing in Cadmus, albeit not in a concerted effort because Eiling is acting without Waller's consent, uh, almost stops them from doing that. Here we get uh, Michael McQuistian's secondary Wonder Woman theme not the primary Wonder Woman theme that was established back in Paradise Lost, but the secondary one that only pops up in episodes he scores. We're about to go into the really great uh, sequence here where Batman launches from the Watchtower and tracks the missile down, hampered only by some rather shaky CG on the missile and the plane uh, in the later portions of the sequence, but still you can't beat it for uh, for tension and sort of blood-pumping action. I also like the idea that Batman has basically memorized the individual capabilities of every single Justice League member. He knows what Captain Adam's top speed is. And here's another uh, instance of the characters hanging around together in the background uh, being appropriate, because here we have Our Man, Obsidian, and Wildcat, three Justice Society members from the comics. The uh, the people that hang around with each other in the background and the, and the Watchtower shots often have some connection from the comics, and so whoever decides who's going to be hanging out with who in the background is obviously very knowledgeable. That's a great shot there, even though some of the animation in this episode is iffy, a lot of the uh, the lighting and individual shot composition is very strong. So I'm going to talk about uh, 
a few things that aren't going to happen until later in the episode, because I know I won't have time to discuss them all in the detail I would like if I wait for them to actually happen. Um, when uh, the Justice League is sentencing Doomsday, so to speak, in that sequence we see that there are six chairs in the, what I guess can only be the, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, the judgment room of the Watchtower. Um, there's six chairs, and but there's only five members there. Shire is not there, and Batman is not there because he's recuperating in, uh, in sickbay. So are we to infer that the sixth chair belongs to Batman and he's not there because he's injured, or does the sixth chair belong to Shira ever since she returned to the League and Batman doesn't have a seat there because he's human, a regular human, and he wouldn't understand the kind of things that the metahumans and aliens have to do. Now, the first, I suppose, is more likely that they just haven't given Shira a seat on the council because she's only just returned and they're not quite sure how much they can trust her. Or, But the second thematically is much more interesting and ties into uh, ties into the exchange between Batman and Superman at the end of this episode and the sort of human versus metahuman tension which, uh, which escalates throughout this season and, and Batman's view of Superman in particular. Uh, the, uh, the basically what the the end of the episode seemed to be setting up was a schism between Batman and perhaps the other non-metahuman members and Superman, Wonder Woman, and the other metahuman members to the point that a lot of uh, savvy viewers began to expect the formation of the Outsiders. The Outsiders, of course, being a team uh, formed by Batman in the comics in, I believe, the 70s. might have been the early 80s, but I think it was the 70s, when he left the Justice League to form a team of people that he could control better and could better direct to suit his purposes, as opposed to the more, uh, as opposed to the, the the Justice League where he was kind of uh, foremost among equals, where he didn't really have any more pull than, say, elongated man, despite his uh, his stature. He wanted a team that he could control and and put into more uh, high risk situations that he would deem necessary. Uh, so people thought that perhaps Batman would be forming an, an all-human uh, outsiders, perhaps manned by people like Wildcat, and uh, maybe they thought that he could pull Nightwing or someone like that, and maybe Huntress, since, since she'd been kicked out of the League, and maybe the question, since he's paranoid to begin with. Uh, and Bruce Tim himself admitted that they thought about going in that direction, having Batman split from the Justice League, but they realized there was really no way out of that story. There was no way to resolve that that wouldn't end up making someone look like the bad guy who shouldn't. Uh, so they decided to go with the more, uh, shall we say, traditional Justice League versus evil government uh, story arc. Here we get a dark version, shall we say, of Superman's theme as he uh, thrashes Doomsday and kicks him into the volcano. I myself didn't, ma- didn't notice that until Bruce Tim pointed it out to me on my uh, musical theme thread on the message boards. Now here, after Doomsday is thrown in, Superman sort of collapses. Now, of course, he's been through this really strenuous fight, but the fact that, for all he knows, and his intent, obviously, was to either lobotomize or kill Doomsday. This episode is very unambiguous about that. He was willing to destroy Doomsday in one way or another to ensure his own survival. So, does he collapse because he's exhausted from the fight, or does he collapse because he's so ashamed with what he almost did or tried to do uh, 
that he's willing to just die right there rather than face it. The episode doesn't really, and, and later episodes don't really follow up on that, but uh, it's an interesting thing to ponder, I think. This couldn't feel any more imperious unless they were playing John Williams' Imperial March in the background. I really wonder, <laughs> when they were constructing this room, they're like, no, the backs of the chairs have to be higher. Anyone we're confronting should feel like Emperor Palpatine himself is staring them down, you know? I don't remember the Phantom Zone projector looking so much like a vacuum cleaner in Superman the Animated Series, but I imagine they used the same design. I don't remember it well enough to say one way or the other. Now we're going to go into the great scene in the uh, the medical bay. Uh, again, the, anima- this, the animation and the line work here is kind of poor. I didn't even realize that was supposed to be Bruce Wayne until he spoke. The... Uh, there's just so, no depth of of line work or of emotion in uh, in some of these drawings, and Bruce looks completely two dimensional there and out of proportion. Plus, his eyes are the wrong color again, but we won't get into that. Uh, so, I, I really wish a, a and Wonder Woman looks completely stone faced there and some really weird facial facial expressions. But anyway, nonetheless, great scene. Um, Batman, of course, lays out his reasons for distrusting them. When Superman says, you know me, meaning, you know, you know I would never do something like that, you you know what I stand for, and everything. Wonder Woman's eye is bulging from her head. Um, right here when Bruce says, yeah, I do, the delivery is ambiguous, I imagine intentionally so, such that we're not quite sure if he's agreeing with Superman and saying, yeah, I do know you, I know you would never do something like that, or is he saying, yeah, I know you better than you think, I know what you're capable of, and I'm not going to let you do it. George Newbern has said that Batman and Superman, uh, not that they have any romantic feelings towards one another, but they're almost like a married couple in the way that they know each other so well and they're so close that they can't help but drive each other crazy. And uh, nowhere is that more evident than in this episode and the arc that it kind of begins for their characters. Uh, Dwayne McDuffie perhaps feeling he needed to clarify the ending, although I feel it was pretty unambiguous as it was, said that Batman is upset with Superman because, to quote him, uh, this episode shows that Superman will cross the lines he set for himself. So on that ominous note, thanks for listening.